Built Not Born, episode 17. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today's guest is Mike Thomas. Mike Thomas is a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley, where he was a seven-time All-American swimmer and a member of Cal Berkeley's 2019 National Championship swim team when the Cal Bears defeated the University of Texas Longhorns in Austin, Texas. Growing up, Mike attended Hatboro Horsham High School outside of Philadelphia, where he broke the national 100-meter backstroke record during his junior year and was one of the top swim recruits in the nation coming out of high school. After an impressive four-year swim career at Berkeley, where he also competed at the Olympic trials, Mike Thomas traded diving into the swimming pool for jumping into wildfires. Mike began training to become a wildland firefighter for Cal Fire and soon found himself on the front lines battling some of the largest wildfires in California state history. Mike and I discuss what it's like to be on the front lines of historic wildfires, his training to become a swift water and flood rescue technician, and his current job as a paramedic. Mike and I also get into what he calls the toughest challenge he ever faced, the untimely death of his dad, who was diagnosed and battled with leukemia during Mike's junior year at Berkeley, right before his national championship season in 2019. Mike and I also discussed the importance of establishing a nighttime routine that sets your next day up for success, the book that most influenced his life, and why hard work and humility are the trademarks of a champion. At 24 years old, Mike is the youngest guest we've had here on the podcast, and I think one of the most impressive. You cannot help but be impressed and even motivated after you speak with him. It's remarkable how he tackles the obstacles that life throws at him and the tenacity and the focus he attacks the goals he places in front of him. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Mike Thomas, seven-time All-American swimmer, member of Cal Berkeley's 2019 National Championship swim team, wildland firefighter, and paramedic. And remember, life is built, not born. Mike Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Mike, for our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, who are you and what do you do? My name is Mike Thomas. I grew up in Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. Started swimming from a pretty early age when I was eight years old and took that into high school, grew a passion for it, applied myself to the hard work and brought that into college. I was very blessed to receive a scholarship to swim at Berkeley about halfway through college. I knew I wanted to do firefighting. So immediately after graduation and finishing swimming, brought that right into the career path I've always wanted to do. And so here I am, I've got one season of wildland firefighting under my belt, and I'm currently in paramedic school about halfway through that. Ultimately, I'm trying to become a paramedic firefighter for a city department around here in the Bay Area. So what are you doing right now? Man, graduated Berkeley 2019, and then made the decision to stop swimming at the end of my championship season when we won the national championships. And about halfway through college, I knew I wanted to do firefighting. So I knew what I wanted to do afterwards and immediately started to pursue that. So upon graduation at Cal, actually, even before I graduated, I was taking an EMT course to set myself up for when I graduated. As soon as I graduated, I had already worked part-time on the ambulance a little bit and I rolled it into a firefighter one academy. That's like the standard certificate you need in order to get into any fire department here. And I just kept things rolling. I was doing a bunch of stuff, working part-time on top of the academy. Once I graduated, I got picked up by Cal Fire for the whole entire fire season. It was absolutely wild. How long? Typically it's seven or eight months, but I was picked up about halfway through and I did about five and a half, six months. Yeah. Until we got our seasonal layoff in And it was like late November, early December. 
So the fires actually started calming down around then thanks to the rain and the colder temperatures. Yeah, it was crazy. I was pretty much gone for five, six months straight. I want to get into all of that swimming, Cal Fire, firefighting, paramedic school, incredible stuff you got going on. But I want to go all the way back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? So I grew up right uh, outside of Philadelphia in uh, Montgomery County. And that's just the suburbs of Philly. Grew up there. What was it like around the dinner table? Say you're 10 years old. What did that look like? Who was there? What was going on? My dad was a carpenter and he was able to have a pretty flexible schedule and come home when he wanted. And my mom was just an elementary school teacher doing kindergarten. So it was pretty nice. We were able to have some really nice family dinners. I got an older sister and a younger brother. So pretty much every single night we were coming home and able to have dinners together. And I didn't realize that was uh, not so normal of a thing compared to a lot of my other friends. So being able to come home and have that family time together, I took that for granted when I was younger. Didn't realize that a lot of families didn't really get that, a lot of my friends. So looking back on those moments, that that was really special for every night for us to come home together and have a nice family dinner. That is really special because that's something that doesn't really happen this day and age. Even the traditional family, there's there's just so much going on. Very rarely do people sit down together these days. That's that's a, it's a lost art. Yeah, totally. I totally agree with that. What, looking back, what's the most powerful or vivid memory of your childhood? I got a lot of vivid memories, especially from swimming that I could pull from. And that was pretty much my life growing up was swimming. I was just surrounded by that. It was swimming in school. And I, I had fun doing all of that. But a vivid memory I had was actually when I first started swimming, it was like eight years old. I did a couple of swim lessons. My mom signed me up because she she was never a swimmer. And she was always like, I, I want my kids to know how to swim. So six years old, she signed me up uh, for swim lessons. By eight years old, she signed me up for Maple Manor. And during my first swim meet, I swam the 25 meter backstroke. I didn't even know what a record was at this time. And so I jump in, I do my swim, I do my thing. And Stu Kukla at the time was the head coach and he's bouncing up and down off the walls. He's got his crazy socks on that he would have up to his, up to his calves. And he's yelling at my mom, like he broke the record. He broke the record. And I had no idea what this was. My mom's like, what is that? <laughs> and I get out. He told me all about it. And the previous record holder was like Graham Lukert. It was like a 20-year-old record. And that kind of just kicked things off. And I remember that moment and just not really knowing what that even was a record. And so that was a pretty funny moment that I always remember and my mom always talks about too. So that was like the beginning of all of that and swimming and and, and all of that fun. So. so- did your mom or parents have any idea like, wow, this kid's a little different for an eight-year-old as a swimmer? Or is that the first time <laughs> you remember something popping? Yeah, that was the first time I remember something popping. I was just doing my swim lessons. I was a pretty high energy kid. And my my dad was always into carpentry. I think he did track for a little bit, but my mom never did any sports. And so I was definitely like a bigger kid. I was thick when I was younger and I was definitely taller than most people. So getting into the pool, I definitely looked a little bigger than most people, but never really thought much about being really fast. It was just, I was a high energy kid. My mom signed me up, get my energy out. And I just did my thing and had my fun. So when did swimming become, this is going to be my main sport that I go through middle school and high school. When do you remember that coming coming Um, together? Yeah. So I think when you start swimming, it's if you dedicate yourself to it pretty early, it consumes a lot of your time and it doesn't really leave a lot for other sports. It can, but I tried out intramural soccer. I got shin splints. I was not good at it. <laughs> it just that wasn't going to happen for me. I always wanted to play football, but my mom said no. She was like, I don't want you getting a concussion, this and that. And I, I think it would have been fun, but obviously I'm very happy that my mom forced me to keep doing swimming. But around 12 years old, I think I got into the club team swimming and everything like that. And and by then you're going to school, you're finishing, you're going to practice, and you don't really have much time for anything else, especially when you start doing it full, all year round. For those that may not be familiar with what like a full-time swimmer looks like in say high school, say you enter your freshman yeah. year, what's an average day for a swimmer? What does it look like? Yeah. So actually by high school, I was swimming for my high school swim team, Hapro Horsham, and also swimming for a club team, Upper Dublin. But whether you're just doing high school or you're doing club teams, you're waking up five o'clock in the morning to go to that swim practice. And then you're getting over to school. You do a full day of school. Afterwards, you're going to go ahead and finish, get to practice around 3, 3.30 and finish up around 5.30. 
have dinner and then I would get to my schoolwork. So it's a full grind and that's Monday to Friday. That's what I was doing all throughout high school. Saturday, you got that Saturday morning practice. Those are actually always the best because you wake up, you do two, three hour practice, you eat a bunch of food and then you take a nap. Just looking at that schedule Monday to Saturday, you just got Sunday to chill. And by, by Sunday coming around, most times you're exhausted. So it's, it definitely consumes a lot of time. That, that midday, how powerful is that midday nap or that nap between sessions? I mean, that, that, that's money, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, it is so money, especially in high school. We would have during my junior and senior year, we would have lunch and then we would have a study period for 30 minutes. And I was just notoriously that guy that would be taking a nap in the back of the classroom. And all the teachers knew like I was a swimmer, so they were cool with it. <laughs> but that nap was just golden because you hit a wallet after you eat some food. Yeah, that nap is huge. So we're into high school. At what point in your high school career do you say, you know what, this is something that I'm going to do in college? Was that always a given or is that something that one day after a certain meet, you're like, you know what, I want to swim full time in college? How does that play out? Yeah, totally. At the point of freshman, sophomore year, it's all I was really doing. And I I just had an extreme passion for the sport. By the time I was in my freshman and sophomore year, it's what I was going to do, basically. And as you start doing these meets and start looking at other fast swimmers and people above you, those start to become your goals. And then by middle high school, you got to start thinking about colleges. And of course, like I had my dream colleges and those became my goals. Those are the swimmers I looked up to. So naturally, I think it was just, I want to go D1. I want to do everything I can to be the best I can. And so those goals come pretty naturally. And uh, the drive to get into college was natural for me. But what point do you realize, not only am I going to play in college, I'm going to be an elite athlete going to an elite college at what point does that click in and what's that process like so i think there were a lot of moments throughout my swimming career where i would look up to these swimmers michael jensen if you look on our story it's pretty crazy you can trace that all the way back to maple manor he would have his success in some event and i would have my success here and i would see that as a little kid and be like hey i want to get to that point you just broke this record and so we bounced off each other for a while and he makes this one national meet I want to make that. I make like, I I final at sectionals and he wants to do that. And so having him in that story and that process was really helpful for me because it was really cool to see each other bounce up, move up the ladder. And throughout that point, it was like, Hey, we're, we're moving along in this and we're competing with some of the best right now in our age group. So it hits you at that point. Like, I'm just going to keep climbing up this ladder and see how far I can get. My kids entered the swim program when you and Mike were basically leaving the program. Probably the most dominant performance I've ever witnessed live in a a high school sport. The summer swim meets when you and Mike were both on the relay at the end. It was you and Mike who went went to Cal Berkeley. You went to Cal Berkeley. And then you might have had, I think, Wyatt, who went to Kentucky. And you had four Division I athletes (laughs) summer swim team. And I've never seen domination like that ever. Like you would win like a minute and a half before the other team would finish. Yeah. Yeah, that was just, that was a lot of fun getting to that point. And I remember when he had moved over to Upper Dublin at a point, I was just like, whoa, that is crazy. Like our records are going to be like so much fun to try and break those and see how fast we can get. Yeah, that was so much fun. And then, yeah, I'm not sure who else we had on the freestyle, but just throwing them on there. It was always so much fun having us four guys stand up there, see what we can do. Oh, you could have had a 40 year old dad on there and you guys would have been setting records with the other <laughs> you know I mean? it's, it's, uh, it's pretty funny. Yeah. So in high school, one of the things that really caught my eye, just doing some research, you said that you basically broke the 15, 16 national age group, the hundred backstroke. You set the national record. Just think of how many high school swim meets there are, how many high school swimmers they are. And you set the 100 meter backstroke record. Uh, another bear made Ryan Murphy. You broke his record at the time? Yeah, yeah, That's totally. Insane. That is crazy. What year were you when you did that? A junior. Junior. So when you do that, how does that affect your college recruiting? Do you get more attention then? Where were you in the process and how did that affect wh- where you went? So actually, it was funny. When I was 14 years old, my best event was the mile. And training for that was awesome, but there it had its pros and cons. And I remember backstroke was, it was always kind of like in the back for me, but it looked like my career is heading towards doing the mile. And when I was about 15, I told my coach like, Hey, I, I don't think like this distance training is for me. I want to do backstroke and getting a nag, the national age group record. We called it, we called them nags. And I always thought that was just like, so cool to have one of those. And looking at the events, hundred backstroke kind of stood out to me. It was like a 46, seven at the time. Seven three, 
or something. And I was like, I want to get that. I want to train backstroke. And so my coach was like, okay, let's do it. Uh, and so I had two years to do that. And that was a huge goal of mine. I actually had an index card sitting on my mirror. Every time I wake up, I have 46.72 written out on my mirror. I would see it every single day for, for about a year. I even had the split on there. I wanted to be out 22, seven and my high school coaches drilled this into my mind. You need to be out 22, seven. And so sure enough, come around to the, come around to the swim meet that year. I was out exactly to the feet, 22, seven finished, um, and finished with a time of 46.65, which broke the record. And it was just so relieving, so many emotions at that time. Wow. I, I actually did that. And it was a huge drop coming from the previous year. So with that and, and being recruited, it, it was huge. There were a lot of people looking at me and how my career could go with backstroke. I remember when I was being recruited by Dave Durden, the head coach at Cal, that was a big thing. He was like, okay, yeah, you just broke Ryan Murphy's record. He's here at Cal. You're going to have great training partners. Jacob Pebley was also a really great backstroker at Cal as well. So that was definitely a big thing for coaches to see. Take us to junior year when you start to commit to a college. What were the schools you were looking at? What were your final three or four that you were looking at before you made your decision? Oh, yeah. So they allow you five recruiting trips total. And so five I decided to take trips on was Cal, Texas, Georgia, Tennessee, and Indiana. And so it was a cool process just breaking all of that down. I had coaches coming in, just talking to me about their school, doing these home visits and stuff like that. That was really awesome. Got to be able to take trips on all of those. And that, that was just an awesome experience. So how'd you land at Cal? What sold you on that of all those great schools you were looking at? Dave and Yuri were the coaches at the time, and they're just so dialed and professional about what they do. I just felt very comfortable with them, with their confidence in coaching, just how they kept a level head. And I saw those guys train when I was there. They did something called a circuit. And back then, a circuit was primarily just done in the weight room once a month. And these guys would just grind. And it was just this crazy weight setup. And the I, it's hard to explain because every single time it was different. But just watching these guys train the way that they did, I just looked at it. I said, I want to be a part of that. Just the way they're communicating, how hard they were working. And then just the school itself, looking ahead at the time, I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. But having the Berkeley degree, that was just a bonus. On top of all that, Cal didn't necessarily have for for their athletes and their swim team. It was nothing crazy with the SEC schools. I feel like everything was just flashed up right in front of your face and nothing against that. But it was just a very humble experience over at Berkeley. Like we're not going to have the world's greatest stuff. We're not going to flash like all of this in your face and maybe spoon feed you a lot of what the other athletes get. You're, you're going to have to know how to do your stuff and you're going to know how to stay on top of it and use what we got. And I saw that as a huge benefit. And so all those things culminated into me wanting to be a part of, of the swim team at Cal. Awesome. A brief recap of your career at Cal. Seven-time All-American, Olympic trials a couple of years back, correct? Olympic mm -hmm. trials. Yeah. And in the 200 fly, the fourth fastest time in school history at the time, 139.95. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And then and the one I really want to touch base on, let's talk about, so 2019, you are in Austin, Texas, going up against uh, the Longhorns, which you, mm -hmm. you guys go back and forth all the time, one and two. And so in 2019, you actually win the national championship with Cal. And you're one of the main contributors. Tell us about that season, how that went down. Oh, yeah, it was just absolutely crazy. Um, Texas has always been a good rival of ours. And every year, it's a dogfight. And heading into that year, it was just a little different. There was something different about our team. I could tell already. Yeah, I'd say the biggest thing is we really moved together as one unit that year. The biggest thing that came from that is the trust. I put it, there was so much trust between each other that I could swim my practice in the I'm group or butterfly group. And the backstroke group could be way over on the other side of the pool or the distance group. But I knew with everything that they were doing everything they could to have the best practice they could to be the best they could at the end of the year. So come the end of the year, those guys could stand up, a sprinter could stand up, and I would know in my heart that this guy is going to absolutely crush his race. And so that trust, it went a long way, especially until the end of the year. And I think that's what made the really big difference to be able to take them down at the end of the year in 2019. So you mentioned a few moments ago, at eight years old, you jumped in the pool, not really knowing anything about it. And next thing, your coach is jumping up and down that you set a backstroke record at your summer swim club. Yeah. All right. Now... You, I, there's a picture. You all jump in the pool after you beat Texas and win the 2019 national championship for swimming. 
What's that like? So you jump in the pool. What what possibly could be going through your head there? It's just straight euphoric feelings. And it's just such a powerful moment just to be surrounded by all of your teammates and you got your coaches and it's just so you did it. And it's just a euphoric feeling that I can't really put into words. You got all of your alumni up in the stands cheering for you too. You're doing your team cheer that you did every single day throughout the four years. And it just made it, it was just such a great moment. When you jump in there, do you know your career's over? When you jump in the pool, that's like the last time you're plunging in or is that still <laughs> decided? I'd say that's totally different for everybody. Uh, for me personally, it was a little bit of a struggle because near the end of my senior year, I was kind of, that's when I really knew I wanted to do firefighting. So I had that drive inside of me, man, I want to do this, but I'm not sure where I'm going to go with my swimming career. So help me up. I had a conversation with my coach about it and he gave me some really good advice. Hey, just get through this season. Don't worry too much about that. No point in stressing about it. You can set yourself up and the moment I actually knew I was done swimming is when I finished my last race, the 200 butterfly. We, we were looking really good point-wise. That was the last day. I hit the wall, and I think within half a second, I just said, wow, that could have been my last race ever, followed by, that sounds really nice, and looked around, and it just felt right to admit that in my mind. And, and at that moment, I, I pretty much knew I was done, and I was ready to continue on the next part of my life. That's awesome. So you're basically at peace. You got there. You basically totally. finished one of the biggest stages in the swim world. You finished a national championship. You did your job. And then you're just a totally at peace when you hit the wall. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Wow. It was crazy. It was just a crazy feeling. It all happened and hit me within half a second, looking around, seeing the alumni go crazy in the stands, looking at my teammates and just there were so many emotions and such a long conversation that happened in my head within half a second. And it was just the perfect time, perfect note for me to end on, in my opinion. And to do it at Austin against Texas, that's just a storybook ending. Yeah, yeah, that was incredibly special. And wow. I, I, a lot of the alumni that were there and the guys that just recently graduated swimming quote that as the, the best week of their lives. That's so cool. Thanks for sharing that story. So Absolutely. I want to move on a little bit here. So I, I read on your sophomore year at Berkeley, Coach Durden had you complete a goal-oriented questionnaire, what you wanted to be. And you said, for the first time ever, I put down firefighter and it became real to me. Can you walk us through that. Yeah. So Dave always had us do a, every fall, he had us do a goal sheet and then we'd have a one-on-one -on -one meeting about it. And I remember one of the last things on there was to list two of your dreams and one of the dreams that I listed, I wasn't totally serious about it at the time, you know, how kids just grow up and, and guys, they want to be cops or firefighters or go into military. That's just a cool thing. I was on the back of my mind. And so I guess I just wrote on there. I was like, I'll be a firefighter. And I, I thought that was a pretty cool dream at the time I was writing that had no leads or any details back. We had that meeting and we actually have a lot of firefighters that I can connect you with that are alumni. I said, that's pretty cool. And that, kept, that got the gears turning. And when I put that on a piece of paper and Dave talked to me about that, I said in my head, like, that is a serious career path for me. And the more I thought about it, the more serious it got. And that, yeah, that is really when it became real for me. When you put firefighter down, did you mean traditional firefighter or do you mean like wildland firefighter? What was going through your head there? There's two, to me, two totally different things. Yeah, totally. I think firefighting, there's two different paths you can take. There's a lot, but generally you could go the wildland route or you could go the city department route. When I put that down, I know I thought that all of that was so cool. I didn't have enough information for to to think, oh, I want to go one way or the other. I just know I want to get into that field and progressing a little further. I wanted a little bit of both. So that's why I have the one the one season of Wildland down under my belt and uh decided to also go with the city department as well. That's pretty timely when we speak of the wildfires because you turn on the news in 30 seconds, they're speaking of the massive wildfires that are going on right now out west, the Dixie Fire, the a Apple Fire. Yeah. There's just so yeah. much going on. Tell us about your experience fighting the wildfires out in California. I don't even know where to begin with that. Okay, so what's the training like? And then what's it like the first day you get dropped in and you're chainsawing and you're battling? Yeah, so I was picked up in... June, I want to say just a month after my firefighter one Academy in my firefighter one, we had one single live burn day and we had a couple conics boxes and we lit a bunch of pallets on fire, right? In a very controlled environment, instructors are all around. You have hose, plenty of water. And so that was my first real experience with fire. And it was, whoa, 
that was crazy. And it was really only just a small pile of fire inside of a conics box. So it was just a controlled environment. You get into the first week of your training at Cal Fire. This is the wildland. And we had a one-week course or academy, you could call it. And it was just a bunch of hiking. And we actually did a, another live burn that day on a couple acres of just really dry grass. And we had a hose, we had a bunch of tools, we were learning everything. And that was also eye-opening to me because really I, at this point, I haven't seen much fire. We've talked about the strategies, tactics, so on and so forth, but really haven't seen much fire. So just seeing that little bits of fire was crazy. And after that first week, I was sent to a station and within 24 hours, we were sent out to a strike team. So that's when you get your red out-of-county bags, you guys are going out there. And so the first one I was sent on was the gold fire. And man, let, let me see how I put this because it was a crazy first shift. What you have to do is something called a hose lay. And that's where you start connecting a bunch of hoses to get up to the fire from the engine to the fire. And you're just constantly carrying hose on your back, coupling it together and spraying the nozzle at the fire. And then you're reattaching hose and you're, that could continue for a mile straight. And so the first real fire is on, it was an initial attack. And so we're doing this hose lay initial attack on this fire and up this super steep terrain, nothing like I've ever seen before. It's just been flat. So this is my real fire experience. And it's me and one other firefighter going up this side of the mountain constantly up and down and fires like the size of the trees. So these are like 20 foot trees. And I was just like, wow, wow, I'm in it. This is it right here. And that hose, my experience of hose lays in the past for 15, 20 minutes, I didn't have much of an expectation as to how long it was going to be. This one drug out for four, five, six hours until it finally, that thing just ripped and passed over and there wasn't much more that we could do. We contained a little bit of the side, but just the wind pushed it so far over and we, we still have work to do once it passed. So how close are you to the firewall? Half a pool length, if you want to wow. <laughs> get a good it, reference for that. It, well, it depends in that same shift. We actually ended at 24 hours. You're supposed to get off the line. We probably got about one hour of sleep that night. And that was a huge relief. And then we woke up in the morning and we got message from chief to our captain, to us, that we were going to be placed on a 48 hour shift. So we weren't even going to get relief. We were up for another 24 fighting fire. And it was just, I didn't even know what a 48 hour shift was. And so it was just crazy. So the action was just nonstop. And it was the craziest shift I could have imagined coming straight out of an academy, only having seen like a couple piles of fire before that. One of the articles are written on that particular one it said you and your team chainsaw for eight consecutive hours and you battle the fire from 2 a.m. to sunrise. There were multiple nights like that. Yeah. And you're you get out there. And what's it? Describe what you're chainsawing and what's it like? What's going on? So actually, I had the time on the engine for only about a month. So when you're on the engine, you got water, obviously. You're rolling around. You are extinguishing the fire on the perimeter of the whole entire whole entire fire. And then I was moved over to the hand crew, and you're operating about 20 people there, but you don't have water. You have chainsaws, and you have hand tools. That's all you've got. You've got little backpack pumps of maybe a couple gallons of water on your back, but that's all we carry. And so the point of us is to remove the fuel from the perimeter of fire and remove it before the fire even gets there. And so the engines will follow up and, and extinguish the fire. So our job was very important on the hand crew. And yes, that consisted of a lot of chainsawing. When I was placed on the hand crew, you have typically two guys that are running the chainsaw. And with those two guys are what we call a swamper. So these guys operate within a five foot, 10 foot bubble of these chainsaws to take those logs, sticks, whatever it is to huck it onto the other side. So we have a clean path of where the fire cannot jump on the other side. And so I was a swamper for about one month straight, just picking up sticks, throwing it logs, throwing it. And we call that the salt team. And then you have 16 other guys following up with hand tools just to clean up that perimeter like axe down any stumps and stubs that are still in the ground. And so there were multiple days. Yeah. Eight hours was a pretty standard day of chainsaw and just letting that thing rip. Uh, you got earplugs in just for hours. Wow. Yeah. And it, what, it was grueling. In the crew that you have, what type of injuries or did you guys lose anyone? It sounds like really intense environment. No, we did not lose anybody and we didn't suffer any type of crazy injuries out there. The biggest thing 
that kind of took our crew out a little bit was poison oak. And so that really got some people actually had to go out of surface service because you get that from your neck down to your toes. You can't sleep at night. You actually get your days off in the hotel, but you're up all night because in your sleep, you're just scratching. So you got to go out of service for that. So there are things like that you don't even think about in firefighting. You think you would be mostly scared of the fire, right? But you got poison oak out there. You got trees dropping spontaneously, all these crazy ants and insects rattlesnakes there's these beetles out there we call them fire beetles i don't know what degree temperature they can live in but you can chainsaw open a log and these things will fly out get down your shirt start biting you so there's so many things that you you wouldn't even think about that you get into the fire season and get to a fire you're not even worried about the fires just all these external things that just add up like wow that sounds pretty intense so you you spent your season uh at cal fire so where do you go from there yeah sure so I actually wanted to get about two or three seasons of Cal Fire down my, uh, under my belt. I always thought that was a really cool thing, like I said. And after that first season, I, it was an awesome experience. I said, I got everything out of this that I wanted to get out of it. I was gone for 31 days straight to start. I burned at 24 and I was back on for another 61 with some periods of relief throughout that. I finished up that season and I was ready to pursue my ambitions of becoming a paramedic. And so I had the experience of being an EMT before I even finished college, before I even graduated, I was working part-time on the rig. And so that's your very basic level of emergency care. You're doing a lot of transports, you're giving oxygen. I always wanted to reach to be on the top level of giving emergency care, basically like a nurse on wheels. And I always thought that was so cool. So finishing up Cal Fire, I thought it was the right time for me to start pursuing that. So here I am. I'm about halfway through paramedic school. I finish up my classroom time. Right now, I'm currently working in the hospital. We have about 144 hours to fill out for that. And I'm cruising along through that. And once I complete that in about three weeks, I'm going to be moving along into the actual field and working as a paramedic under a preceptor. And that'll go on until the end of the year. And so upon completion of that, yeah, I could be a working full-time paramedic until I get picked up by a department. What's the most memorable call you made so far as a uh, paramedic? I got to think about that one. Taking people from dialysis over to the hospital. That was just like eye-opening itself, just being able to care for other people and understanding what they're going through. And that, that was just definitely very eye-opening. Help with the patient care, knowing how to talk to my patients and things like that. Your ENT, it gives you a great awareness and empathy where you have someone where you wake up, your version of a bad day is nothing like someone who's on dialysis where their version of a bad oh, day, yeah. Yeah, they're on the verge of death or the verge of passing out or going into some sort of shock. And it gives you a gratitude for the simple things and knowing that your bad day is probably not that bad. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah totally. Exactly. They're going through the worst days of their lives and you're going to be surrounded by all of that. And sometimes you're just going to do the best that you can. You did some swift water and flood rescue certification with a fellow, one of your Cal swimmers, uh, Carson Sand. Tell us about that. Yeah. So that was super cool. Just having the background in swimming. I, I always thought just even doing that course aside from firefighting was just a cool thing to have. And very fortunately, it links directly to firefighting itself. Firefighters, nine out of 10 of their calls, they're actually just medical calls. And then one out of 10 of the calls, that's actual firefighting. And certain percentage of that too is a lot of rescues, a lot of hazmat. And so if you're around here in the Bay Area or even in Sacramento, you're going to get a lot of floods. You're going to get a lot of drownings and a lot of these water rescues. And so having that under your belt is definitely a desirable thing to have when departments look at you. So the whole entire experience was awesome. And it also benefits me as well. Yeah, if, if I was drowning, uh, I would like a cow swimmer to come get me. <laughs> They're in good hands. I mean, that's, that's the person you want to come get you, you know, the national champion swimmer to come grab you. You're in good hands there. Uh, I, let's uh, shift gears here a bit, learn a little bit more about you as a person. Looking back of all the things from swimming, your family, uh, going to college, national championships, wild firefighting, what's the biggest challenge you ever faced? And that is a good question. Let me think about that one. The sure, biggest thanks. challenge I faced throughout all of swimming and uh, wildland firefighting. Or life. Definitely a bit more of a, a personal answer. But when I was in college and making that decision to come over to, from Pennsylvania to California, that's a huge move in and of itself. And I knew that I was going to be going pretty far, but 
to, to go on the other side of the country was a huge move for me. And my biggest fear was that somebody in my family, they're going to get sick or something. I was going to be on the other side of the country doing swimming, academic rigor of being at Berkeley. It was going to be hard to come home. And fortunately, my dad was diagnosed with leukemia during that freshman year. And that was definitely a very hard time for me, very hard time for my family. He ended up getting a bone marrow transplant, going through some chemotherapy. And unfortunately, that, that, that took a toll on his body. Come around to my junior year, I went home. And he wasn't doing so well. Ultimately, he had to make the decision during my junior year. The cancer had spread and the doctors told us there wasn't much more that we could do for him. And his body had rejected everything. Cancer had spread. And ultimately, the decision was we can either go hospice or we can try some more rounds of chemotherapy and try another bone marrow transplant. And his decision was to go on hospice. And so he encouraged me to go back for my championship season, carry that out and backtrack a little bit. Sorry. He, so, so actually the day before my championship meet, my mom had called me and let me know that my dad had passed away. Wow. And that was just, uh, it just all hit me. It was like so much pain. So that's definitely the hardest thing I've ever had to go through in my entire life, just to see the pain in, in my mom's eyes in my mom's eyes, my brother's eyes, my sisters, my whole entire family, just to see how that impacted everybody was just, I was numb for months. And that was just such a hard thing to go through. And it still is, there's pain to this day. And so to do all of that was definitely difficult to carry on throughout swimming and just daily life was difficult. And being out in California too, very difficult time. But the big takeaway with that, especially with my career, knowing what I wanted to do was having experienced that pain before and thinking about who I was going to be able to treat later as a paramedic, later as a firefighter. I'm going to have fellow firefighters and other people, patients relying on me. So to have had that experience, just I would never want another person to have to go through that. Although death is inevitable. If I could be that differentiating moment in somebody's life, I'm there to sacrifice for that. I'm there to do everything that I can in, in my abilities to make sure they have the best outcome possible. Wow. Uh, thank you for sharing that. What was the time frame between uh, your dad's passing and you winning the 2019 championship? About a year. Wow. Yeah. Man, well, a little more than a year, yeah. You know what? When you got that picture of you guys jumping in the pool, I got a feeling he was in the pool with you. There's yeah, no doubt. Absolutely. No doubt. Being yeah. a dad, he he jumped in there with you. That's amazing. Thank <laughs> you for sharing that, man. That's a remarkable story. That had to be so tough too, being on the other side of the country and all that was going on. Yeah. Moving on. When you need to clear your mind or recharge your body, what do you do? So I'd say back then, just swimming was my greatest outlet. And I've carried that actually into just even more exercise now. I'm on my shifts at work, just hanging out with my friends is always just a de-stressor on its own. And recently I got into running and biking while I've been out here in Davis. So mm. actually currently training for a half Ironman, which is in less than a month from now. And I really did get into running around when I was wildland firefighting, just going on a long run. I could just clear my mind 40 minutes. It's almost meditative just to be out there and getting that runner's high get the same thing on the bike just to be out there for two three hours on a bike is just i could finish that and feel so great just periods of clearing my mind also while i've been out here I've really gotten to fishing just to get out there sometimes go out there by myself and again that's all also meditative on its own just casting the reel and getting out there being by yourself or maybe just hanging with some friends just take yourself away from life and yeah, it's, that's awesome. you don't even yeah, need you to got catch plenty anything. of outlets out here. You don't even need to catch anything in fishing. The meditative <laughs> zen is there. The fish yeah. don't even have to be in the lake. Mm -hmm. Just the anticipation of catching one or just the quiet noise, being with nature, hearing the birds, everything like that. That's just relaxing on its own. High performers like yourself, I, they usually have a morning routine and a nighttime routine right before they go to bed, right when they wake up. What does the first 60 minutes of your day look like? I actually have a pretty good nighttime routine. Ever since I started swimming in uh, high school, I would always set myself up for the next day. And that would just set my clothes out. I would make a breakfast, steel cut oats. I would lay in bed and just think about what I'm going to do the next day. And so in college, that was huge for me. Just having a nighttime routine where I shut the phone off. I think about what I'm going to be doing in the morning. I set up my clothes, 
set up my backpack, whatever I need for the day so that when I wake up, I'm fresh, I'm ready to go. All I need to do is grab my things and I could start. More, if you don't have to think in the morning, you just get going on your day. That's a good start. Is there a book that influenced or changed your mind? I definitely got into reading quite a bit about couple years ago, and I've read a lot of good ones, one called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. How great is that? (laughs) Yeah, that one's great. You've read that before too? Yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, so I got into meditating about sophomore, junior year, and I didn't really, if somebody told me to meditate when I was a sophomore, I would have been like, what are you you talking about? I'm not going to sit there and do that. That's crazy. And so I don't know. I read this book and I uh, kind of got into meditating a little bit and didn't know really what I was doing the first month. I didn't really feel anything. And then about three months into it, I just stuck with it. And suddenly over time, you just learn to take control of your emotions. You're, you can separate the two. <clears throat> and that just helps so much in swimming, so much in clearing my mind. There's so much power in, in meditating and understanding your own emotions. So that's just been a, a process that I've been working on over the past four years, still meditating now almost every day. It's a hard habit to keep up, but it's incredibly rewarding. Uh, That book, after you read it, there's nothing more powerful than the present moment. I think you could just, and it's so hard to stay there, but be there. Totally. But when you're there, it's your your best version of you. Because if you're looking back and you're you're upset of what happened yesterday, you're like depressed. And if you look forward and you're like, there's uncertainty and you're scared or whatever you have anxiety. But if you live in the, pre- if you're just focused on now, you're at your mm-hmm. best, right? You're- yes. Yeah. Now, th- right now, the present moment, that's all you got. So you got, so there's no, if you're stressing about the decisions you made a while back, you're going to have a standstill. You're just going to be stressing about that. And there's no point in doing that. The only thing that you can focus on is right now for your future you start stressing about the things that are coming down later in your path. You're stressing about you didn't get this job. You could be upset about it, but you, you got you go to work on, on, on the present moment, especially for emotions, frustration. Frustration is a, a dangerous game to play. And if you can get, dig yourself out of that, focus on right now, that's going to change your life. Thank you for sharing. That's a phenomenal book recommendation. When you are at your best, what are you doing? I talked a little bit about just being in that meditative zone when you are having that runner's high, when you are biking, when you're swimming and you're in that flow state, you can find that flow state. Even if you're not an athlete, even if you're not exercising, people can find that whether you're a sales rep and you're just crushing it that day. And I find when I can really start nailing down certain aspects of my life, like nailing down a routine, that morning routine, meditating, exercise. I got my diet on point. I could hit that flow state almost every single day and what it is that I'm doing. I'm just clear-minded, super sharp. I feel confident in all the decisions I'm making at work as a paramedic, as a firefighter. I start nailing down these routines, hard thing to do. But when you get into that, that flow state comes pretty often. And that, that's when I'm feeling the best after a steady week or month of just really nailing down my routines and staying on top of it. Awesome. You mentioned diet. What role of diet play in your life now? And what, 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 what's, your, what's like a like a good diet? What's a healthy diet look like for you? Yeah, for sure. So I actually used to track my calories pretty hard, and I did that for a year out of swimming, and that was great. That was great. But at a point, I just realized it was consuming so much of my time. I just figured if I just eat healthy and not worry too much about the calories I'm consuming and and the macronutrients, if I just eat healthy, like that's going to take the stress off my back. And so that's what I've been doing for about two years now. If it's healthy, I eat it and I have a good meal plan set out for myself, but I definitely don't hold back when it comes to eating out with friends. Everything in moderation is how I've been living over the past two years. And I, I think that's the way for me. Just eat healthy. And when I want to splurge a bit, I do. What's the, the most exciting project you're working on now? What's got your attention? I'm pretty consumed with training for this half Ironman. But that, that's a big thing for me. I get to choose to bike, swim, or run. Whatever I'm feeling that day, I'll just do that, keep my strength up. And we have a gym here at this apartment complex that I'll just go to keep my strength up. So that's always fun. If you want to call the Ironman a project. Yeah, that's that's probably the biggest project I'm working on. That's a legit project. Yeah, that's a legit. Yeah. When is the Ironman? When, when does it take place? September 12th in Santa Cruz. Oh man, good luck. How about what advice would you have for an incoming freshman swimmer or any elite athlete going into an elite school like, like you just came through, like Cal Berkeley? What advice would you have for them as they are starting their journey? I, I could go one of two ways in the, in the perspective of your sport. Always stay humble. 
you can get to the top level. You can be Michael Phelps at your sport, but there is always something to work on. You can always be better. We were always working on something. We have were record holders on our team and they were still spending an hours per week perfecting their dive. So staying humble in your sport, always knowing there's something to work on every single day, no matter what is definitely huge in any type of sport. In terms of the bigger picture and thinking of life, I'd say it's never too early to start thinking about your career paths. If you say you ever had any idea of doing firefighting, get yourself out there, be proactive and take a station visit. Maybe that's for you and you just don't know. You have connections, especially as an athlete. Everybody has connections. Start networking from an early age. And that's a really hard thing to do when you're younger. It's a scary thing. But the earlier you can start networking, being proactive about that, the the better it's going to be when you graduate college and want to make that transition. I think that's a common thing for athletes to get so focused and dialed in on their sport. They forget about what they're going to do next. So always having to plan for yourself and being proactive about what you want to do after college is very beneficial. Stay humble. Always something to work on. Be proactive. That's phenomenal advice if you're 15 or 65. What's the biggest lesson you learned from your time at Cal Berkeley? Uh, Yeah, one of the biggest lessons I learned going back to the whole meditating and Eckhart Tolle present moment now is just being able to control your emotions. Mm -hmm. There's so many times where you're going to have that off practice that you're going to train all year just for a meet for a game and you're going to, you might flop, it might not be good and you can get angry, you can get frustrated and you can let that knock your confidence for the next day. And like I said, self-restriction is a dangerous game to play and you aren't going to make it far. That's going to separate you from being a pretty good athlete, from being absolutely stellar and being the best that you could be. And so understanding my emotions, how to deal with them and separating that from my conscious mind, that's been huge for me. And it's been a process over four years. You're going to have so many failures, especially looking at my career. We're doing a new thing every single day. I'm getting a new patient that I've never seen before. You're picking up new skills. You, the amount of failure you're going to have in this career is crazy. And, and learn from that. That's just going to keep you even better. And uh, the power of now, Hartori mentions the, uh, you are not your emotion. You, like, something will happen. There'll be an external stimulus and some crazy thought will pop in your head. You want to run away. You want to scream. You want to punch someone. You want to throw something. But like yeah. the main thing I remember, you pause, you hold it. Like you have mm-hmm. it, you acknowledge the emotion and then you let it go. Like you, you, you don't have to react. There's like that space between stimulus and your response. There's a little gap in there. And that's that pause. And that's the ability you have to control your emo- Just because you have the emotions doesn't mean you have to act on them. Does that make sense? Exactly. Yeah. So the book is really big about being able to separate your emotions from your actions. Yeah. And there is that gap. And in that small gap, it's hard to know that those are separated. Before I even read, I thought it was all just connected and Mm -hmm. just react on your emotions. But you have that split second where you can decide, okay, my mind's telling me I'm frustrated, but I don't have to react angry. I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people to understand. When I started running, I hate running. I I do not like every second I'm telling myself, oh, just walk. This is terrible. My feet hurt. I started out running one or two miles. Now I'm running about 10 to 13. And those, the frequency of those thoughts has not, it hasn't changed. I'm still running. And most times I'm saying, stop, let's stop. This, this is terrible. But the difference now is that I'm comfortable with those thoughts. I, I have that little gap where I can say, no, we're not going to stop. We're going to keep going. No, we don't have to be frustrated right now. We don't have to react like that. That's helped me keep a level head in, in everything, all the aspects of my life. That's great. That pause. There's a there's a quote, and I'm I'm going to butcher it, but that pause. Hmm. Those who can control that pause, they're going to control their lives. And the ones that can't control that pause between stimulus and response and just fly off the handle, the, your the direction of your life is basically brought about in that your ability to make yeah, sense. Absolutely. Just having that pause, it takes so much work to it's crazy. Yeah, it's a lifelong pursuit. The yeah. first step, I think, is being conscious of the fact that you do have that pause, you have mm-hmm. these emotions, and you don't have to react on them. And Becoming aware of that first is the is the first step. And then working on that, it takes years and years of practice. I can't say I'm a master of that at all, but being conscious of it, it's changed my life.
You know, I don't think there's any mastery of that. Like you said, just having the awareness that the pause is there and knowing that's on you because you can't control the external stuff. You can't control what people say, people do what explodes in front of you, what's on fire in front of you. That's not by you, but you right. control your response to it. You crumble, you stand up, you dive in, you don't dive in. That's you. And uh, no, that's just a couple more wrapping up. If you could go back and talk to the people around that dinner table back in PA when you were 10 years old, what would you want to tell them? Am I talking to myself there too? Am I just just a 23-year-old me talking to myself and my family? Absolutely. That's a great question. Something I've never thought about. I'd say just don't forget about little things in life and just knowing how to relax. Just have outlets, have fun. And don't take things so seriously. Don't take yourself so seriously all the time. There's other joys in life that are very important and creating that balance for yourself. Work, life, swimming. Don't get so consumed with one aspect of your life. There's more than just your sport. There's more than just this or that. And just don't get caught up with one thing. Enjoy other things. Spend the time with your friends and family. Last question. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Are you the man that you want your son to be? Wow. <laughs> That's yeah. a 20 pound mic hitting the floor. Are you the man you want your son to be? I think that is about as good as a spot to end as any. That's fantastic. Mike Thomas, thank you for joining us. It's been uh, it's been an honor to have you on the show. I appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate you inviting me on here. That was a lot of fun. People are looking for you online or what you're doing. Uh, where can they find you? Yeah, totally. You can uh, find me on Instagram. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I don't go on there that much. So if you're going to find me, just head on over to Instagram, just shoot me a message. Totally happy to answer anything, help you out. If you're ever thinking about firefighting, I'm here to help you out. Just say, hey, and I'll help you out. It's a pretty confusing pathway. Mike, good luck. First off, thank you for your time. Uh, congratulations on an amazing swim career, national champion, All-American. All That's just phenomenal stuff. And can, best of luck with firefighting and uh, EMT and paramedics. And you're doing great work out there. So I really uh, wish you nothing but the best, man. Very impressive what you're doing. Thanks so much, Joe.